welcome to another edition of Linking the Travel Industry, where we discuss popular and interesting travel industry posts which appeared on LinkedIn during the last week. And occasionally we might talk about stories which appeared elsewhere. We absolutely welcome audience participation. So if you have a comment on any of the stories we discuss here today, please raise your hand and we'll get you on stage. My name is Rian and I'm one of your hosts today. I am the CEO of Agentivity, where we help travel management companies gain insight into and control of their businesses, as well as achieve scalable growth through the effective use of their data. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this LinkedIn event. My name is Anne, and I work as a consultant in the travel industry, and I'm associated with the brands of LeapShift and Extortech. Hi, everyone. My name is Ash, and I am the Vice President of Sales at Traxo. Additionally, I host a weekly business travel podcast called What's Up in Business Travel. And this is Linking the Travel Industry. So, guys, there we are. Another Monday, another session. Pedro um, did a post last week which uh, caught the attention of myself and a few others. Pedro, if you can do us a quick intro and then tell us about the story. Very good. Well, thank you so much for for having me here and for your invitation. In case you don't know, Top Air Portugal was fined by the Department of um, Transportation, the U.S. Department of Transportation, and actually there were a, there was a package of airlines that was uh, that were fined as they have not complied to the reimbursement uh, rules uh, during COVID. And TAP Air Portugal was the only European airline that sort of stroked my attention because TAP Air Portugal is a hundred percent state-owned airline. Unlike what happened with other airlines during um, during COVID, the um, the Portuguese state has fully nationalized TAP, and actually it donated 3.2 billion euros to the airline. When I say donated, is because unlike what happened with other airlines, this isn't a loan to be reimbursed. And we've seen that with a few airlines that have already reimbursed with um, paying interest rates. So it's our taxpayer money that has been donated without our, let's say, permission. And this has been decided by the government because they saw that as the only viable solution uh, to save the airline. Now, if our taxpayer money wasn't used and there were 3.2 billion in that amount. Is it fair to see that our taxpayer money is being used to pay a fine to the US? So I think this was a clear mistake by the current TAP or Portugal management for which they're not even being accounted for. So nobody is being blamed for this. And I, I think this is a, a huge mistake. But I, I wanted to focus on another aspect, if that's okay, which is regulation and passenger rights. Before you go on there, Pedro, I, and I know you're, you're pressed for time, um, I just want to ask you a quick question about the connection between the fine by the Department of Transport or the timing of the fine and the timing of this uh, donation. How did that line up? You know, When did the Portuguese government invest that money into TAP? Well, this has been progressive. So there was, um, they've even injected this money before the European Union gave their approval. And that, and that happened with a few, um, with a few airlines as well. So governments had the feeling that they had to act pretty fast. But unlike what happened with other governments, that they basically did loan agreements with payment terms. Your, so, your post that you did was about Department of Transport fine. And just remind us again, what was the, how big was that fine that they levied on TAP? 
Initially, it was one million, and now the fine has been reduced by half a million. Okay. And the reason for that reduction is because TAPIA Portugal has shown during this process goodwill in, in complying with the U.S. Uh, regulation. We were talking about half a million yes. dollars. Um, before you continue, uh, Pedro, I know you wanted to talk about some of your consumer issues. Uh, Nicolas, who just raised his hand there, asked to, to get on and um, comment. I would assume, Nicolas, relating to this story, do you mind just uh, giving us your thoughts on, on the story? I just wanted to add that the same thing happened with a general alliance in Greece, which is not public state uh, ownership, which is private equity. And they lended, the government lended 5 billion euros to that company over taxpayers' money without any loan contract. So it's again the same story here as Fran describes for Portugal Airlines. So um, the same story goes again here. So that's what I wanted to add. It's not only Portugal, it's many airlines around the world which are not public state ownership profile, but they keep putting money on the airlines of taxpayers' money. To your knowledge, have we ever seen the Department of Transport levy fines on carriers abroad for this type of thing? I find it very interesting that Portugal and Greece find themselves so often in the same in the same sort of story. That tells a lot about our governments. And about your question, I, I think there is one thing that we keep forgetting is that we see the U.S. as, as a country of freedom, and it is. But for those who know, and I think Ash is in a very... In, in a much better position to, to comment on this. It's freedom tagged along with a lot of regulation. I guess this is probably where the expression do things by the book comes from. You know, not only there are very strict rules to be observed, but there is always a very strict regulator keeping an eye out. And this is something that TAPR Portugal in its home market is not used to. <laughs> yes, and, fair enough. Okay. Surely it's a good thing that there's strong uh, attention to consumer you know, rights in that model, right? That's what you were going to. But I, I like the fact that you conclude there that they're not used to it in Portugal. This was not something that Top Air Portugal decided to do only in the US. We have travel agencies, passengers, companies here in Portugal that have gone through the same uh, nightmare and the regulator here has done nothing or said nothing about it. Why is this happening like this here in Portugal? Why is the Portuguese regulator not acting in the same way? There are two reasons. One reason is the concentration of power. The same minister who we also call the CEO of TAPR Portugal, because obviously he represents the state as an owner of TAP. So that minister, he's also the minister of the infrastructure, meaning the airports. NAV, so NAV, is the public entity that distributes and appoints the slots at airports. This is also under his jurisdiction. And obviously, because he's minister, he owns the executive power and he legislates. Let me interject here and let me talk about the original story, which is around the DOT fine. First of all, thank you very, very much for half a million dollars here in the U.S. We sometimes need the money, so we appreciate that. Um, <laughs> secondly, I want to just uh, make a couple of points uh, around this fine. You know, the DOT, by the nature of what they are, is not a very aggressive body of the government. They don't go out and try to find fines to find people with because they're kind of slow when it comes to those kind of activities. They're actually motivated by the number of complaints that they receive because that forces them to have to do something. And that's why you see a lot of these fines are always so late because it takes so much time for this process 
process to occur. When the DOT is finding you, chances are that you've pissed off a lot of people, and those people are so mad that they actually went on a government website, which who the heck wants to ever do that? Uh, but when they get there, they actually fill out a form and they do all this kind of extra work. So when the DOT sees hundreds of thousands of these letters coming in, it's kind of like, okay, now we got to read them, we got to go through them, et cetera, et cetera. So the fines actually are levied out of a desperation and more so more like a, you know, we must do something kind of action. And out of all the airlines that were fined, I believe half of them are actually state-owned, uh, which doesn't surprise me only because the governments were in flux during the pandemic. And this is, of course, all pandemic related. And you have a lot of these penalties going out. And this is all according to regulations that all the airlines know, that if you are selling a ticket to a traveler and you cancel the flight, then the traveler is owed a refund. And it is unlawful for the airline to refuse a refund, by the way. And also, it's unlawful to provide vouchers as a replacement of the refund because the refund must be issued to the traveler. And so why is all of this designed this way? It's to reduce the negative impact to the consumer. And I think that that's something that we can all agree is the right thing to do. So these fines are kind of done as a desperation and really total fines, I think were less than 7 million. And I think that's probably going to get reduced down to 3 million in total with all those airlines, Frontier, Air India, TAP, Aeromexico, LL, and Avianca. But more important thing is the refunds because the refunds are in excess of 200 plus million dollars. And so you have all these consumers who are out there who just spent all this money and now they're not going to get their money back. So I think that's unfair. And so I think that that's why this is an important story. And it's one I featured on my podcast, actually. That's why I kind of know a little bit more about it. But this is a, an important one. But nonetheless, I think it's probably because no one took any action and therefore the fines were levied. I'm so happy that you mentioned that because, Ash, what happened here in Portugal is that, like I told you, the regulator is sort of the continuation of top of the government, of the minister. So at the beginning, our regulator here has authorized all reimbursements to be done as a voucher. And it took the European Union to review that a few months later to force our uh, regulator to go back and say, oh, okay, well, I guess we need to, to comply with the European directive. And the ones that are being fined by the U.S. government are the ones, are the flights that came to the U.S., right? So obviously Absolutely. what happens outside of the U.S., the U.S. department doesn't have jurisdiction over there, but the fines are based on the U.S. flights. And if you didn't read the fine print, then that's, I guess, something that these airlines have learned over during the pandemic. You have to provide a refund, not a voucher. To five destinations in the U.S., so you can only imagine what happened in the rest of the world. Yes. You know, out of the fines, I mean, Frontier, which is a U.S. airline, was actually levied the highest penalty of over $2 million. Air India was next at $1.4 million. Uh, you already mentioned Air Portugal was $1.1 million, but they reduced it to five hundred. So, you know, I mean, those are the top three right there, right? Biggest penalty was against, again, a U.S. airline in excess of $2 million. Fascinating story. I mean, this is a huge point of frustration, um, I know, amongst our customer base is having to deal with the airlines not wanting to do the refunds, but doing the you know, the vouchers and the extension of rules, etc., which became very complicated. And eventually, many people just gave up, right, on trying to even get that. So it's great for me, and from my perspective, to see the Department of France was acting there on behalf of the consumer. So, you know, pretty positive story, right, Ash? Yeah, yeah. And, and on top of that, don't forget that, I mean, and I'm talking U.S. here only, but the U.S. airlines, right, which are not government-owned and nor are they government-run or anything like that, but they received an excess of $25 billion, with a B, billion dollars for bailing them out of the pandemic. So that's a huge amount of money. And that's all taxpayer money, by the way. It's just really, really sad, this whole uh, refund issue. And that, that springs into mind something I remember terrible with Norwegian who went into some kind of Chapter 11 reconstruction and then nobody got any refunds. And people just lost their money. 
Yes, that happens in South Africa with the South African Airways going into what they call business yeah. rescue and then eventually also yeah. going to pay out. Right, Dean, as well. A, a lot of people here, mm. they got vouchers that they cannot really monetize or they cannot really mm. use in the former flights or whatever. The same thing happens here, but uh, Aegean hasn't been fined at all, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, I think it's shocking. It's, it's, really, it's really sad. And in the case of Norwegian, it was shameful because... The uh, the big bosses, two of them, got uh, bonuses in the range of, of millions of Norwegian krona, and, and the people got zero refunds. It's not very good customer service. Pedro, I mean, once again, thank you for your time today and for bringing us that thank story. Thank you very much. Yes. And, um, you. you know, for sharing thank your you, views today. So thank you very thank much. Thank you so much. And, thank Nicholas, you. thank you to you as well. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you, and Thank you, Ryan, Arsh, and Pedro. That was the the future story of the week. Obviously, we've got quite a few other stories to cover, and um, let me just sort out a few things there on the stage. That was a nice jolt for my for my coffee. Like my coffee didn't kick in, but the <laughs> story kind with... of raised the bar a little bit. Feeling oh, good. The story. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> my other stories. Uh, let's start with one about the. Uh, I, I saw this by Jennifer Bell from Executive Travel, where she posted about a study by the GBTA were very, very positive expectations for 2023. Any surprises there, Ash? I mean, is this expected? Yeah, the surveys are nice. You know, they kind of give us a picture of the future, but I'm weary of the survey because I think that the 2023 year is going to be a little bit more restrictive in terms of spend. So I know right now people might not realize it, but I think by the time this year is over and next year started, you're going to start to see companies tighten their belts a little bit. And by the way, if you look at the history, uh, and I'm talking, you know, U.S. ARC sales here, so it's not global by any means, but the sales in the U.S. for travel have flatlined for the last three months. And they're hovering around $7.3 billion uh, on a month-by-month basis. And I think that that's going to be indicative because I think that people are starting to now realize that, hey, we need to be a little bit careful about how much how we're spending money and CFOs and our finance departments within companies are starting to notice global trends a little bit more. So you being the cautious approach there, and before I ask ever, you know, I have to say, as a business owner myself, I can tell you now that the, the the flip side to that coin is the value in the meeting, right? And so we as a business have not traveled much, um, obviously kept the belts, you know, tight and 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 the, and the money's you know under control. But it, 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 there comes a time in the life cycle where you you simply have to get back on the road and see those leads and customers again, and that might be a big uh, factor in the responses to that service. People are kind of feeling that way but the reality might kick in as you say Ash, and they, they realize there might not be that money to spend and you know i think that companies that have been a little bit tighter are probably going to loosen up because they're going to see an opportunity and this is a cycle that we see happening yes. every three four years right is this the cycle just continues on which is that now we're going to notice that hey you know my competitor is not traveling i'm going to get on the road because i haven't been on the road versus a company who's been on the road who's going to say hey i'm going to hold back a little bit so you're going to yeah. see the duality occur Apart from the fact that they, they said 78% of the travel managers expected more travel, I, I like the fact that many of them were saying there's definitely more leisure, right? That mixture of the leisure and the business travel happening, and that will continue yeah. to say as well. So that's nice. And yeah. what are your thoughts on this study and the result? Do you think it's reflective of what's going to happen in, um, in, in the European markets? Well, I think the leisure aspect is very interesting, like you said. And I also think that the sort of untapped uh, digital nomads is another very interesting group that we're going to see much more of. Of course, I mean, it's related to, of course, we're worried about inflation. Inflation here is actually going down slightly. So, you being where? Uh, in, in Scandinavia, where I am. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's coming down. Okay. Yeah. And they're not calling it blusher anymore. They're calling it blended. That's the new blended, word. Blended. Blended. There's always a new word, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's another T-shirt. There is always another word. Yes, another buzzword. Yeah. I think the T-shirt no, should no. read, it's not blusher, silly, it's blended. Google released a study recently that I read where they're saying about one-third of business travelers say that they're more motivated to go on a blended trip because it makes business trips more fun. Can yes. you imagine a CFO reading this and saying, hmm, yeah, well, you're going to have a lot of fun, buddy. <laughs> no, I don't think so. This is money that we're spending for the company. You know, it's, it's like, it's a, such a contradiction, right? Where the traveler goes, oh yeah, yeah. I like this concept blended. And then the CFO is like, no. <laughs> but wouldn't you agree, Ash, that we're talking more and more about the welfare of the traveler, right? If, yeah. if the traveler is happy, that just produces a better quality of work and yeah. and this this crazy you know when i mean i've i've been a so-called road warrior sometimes you know th- throughout various jobs that i've had and it's exhausting and and if you can actually blend it now she's using the right correct buzzword that does help a lot because you do have to rest Absolutely. Now we've got two people joining us again. Nicholas, your thoughts on this topic? Yeah, sure. Uh, from the last comments you made, uh, I think business traveling is quite different from leisure traveling. Uh, for example, I travel a lot due to business and I don't enjoy leisure <laughs> while traveling in a business trip because I'm mostly on my own. So <laughs> I cannot have a really leisure time on my own. But the other subject I would like to ask is how optimistic you are in terms of the travel industry going ahead into 2023, because I feel very pessimistic about it with inflation, with great reset ongoing, with all these aspects of pandemic and new pandemic, new blackouts coming up. And all these aspects really frightens me, which made me to hold back on the the business side. So I would really like to know your insight on how you feel that the industry is going to be like in the next couple of years, because I feel it's going to be terrible. And I hope I'm I'm striving to find someone more optimistic than me. Well, I think by being in the industry, Nicholas, we have to be optimistic because we have to push out that message of optimism into the marketplace. So uh, please continue to do that and please be optimistic. Uh, but at the same time, I also think that we need to be cautious and we need to be aware, right? So I think that the that the travel industry is going to do that. And that's why on the survey, I was saying that while the survey is great and it sounds good today, might not be the same case. So we just have to watch and see. Um, Jonathan, did you have something to add? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think there's a discussion among in managed travel about the sustainability impact and policies that are going to be implemented with respect to trying to limit day trips and the like. Curious what you guys think. We, we talk about corporate demand and economic impact of, you know, of overarching you know, inflationary conditions and overarching economic considerations. But what impact do you think sustainability policies and the sort of the elimination of potentially the day trip or other kinds of trips where technology can um, sort of supplant the, the need to be there in person. What, what do you think the impact of that is on corporate, on, on demand overall in 2023? So to that, I'm going to answer yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you were... Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. That is a good answer. I was going to come up with something more intelligent, but no, it's a good answer. Getting more value out of a trip is going to be crucial for most people, like it is for me. And that, you know, sustainability influence on that is going to weigh in quite heavy in that decision. You know, am I, is this good 
overall value, which includes the sustainability aspect of it. That's my view. I don't know what you think. And because Ash just thinks yes, right? <laughs> I, I totally agree with you, Rowan. I think it's going to be about the value of the trip and the justification. And I think there's been very little justification in the past, very little insights. Um, I, I rem- we, we saw a really excellent survey, right, by um, said Scott Gillespie, I think it was, wasn't yes, it? Yeah, it was. Yep. Yes, yes, yep. yeah, that was, that was brilliant. And, and the sort of justification value, I think, is going to be much more relevant and, um, and as it should be, right? I mean, that's... It's, as it should be. Yeah, yes, as it should absolutely. be. Well, I, think, yes. I think that's kind of why blended trips is becoming the norm, right? I mean, if you think about yeah. it from a eco perspective, right, a climate perspective, if I'm going from here to Europe and let's say I'm going to London to meet all of you that are in London and... I know that I'm going to want to take a vacation, uh, you know, in the summer. Why wouldn't I just extend my business trip out into a blended trip, bring my wife along with me, and now I've just cut my CO2 output by 50%? Absolutely. It makes total sense. By the way, I want to do a quick shout out to Jim in the audience. Hey, Jim, thanks for joining us today. Vimal's here. Our friend George is here. Very nice to see some familiar faces, and thank you guys for giving us your time. Oh, it's here. Wow. Yes. Nice audience today. It's because because the jam is here, Ash. The jam is here, so the audience is here, right? So there you go. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, I have two other press stories before we get to the space news, because Ash can't wait for that. The one was from uh, Skiff, just telling us about JetBlue's second transatlantic destination being Paris. I don't know whether that came as a surprise or it's worth talking about. And did you expect that from JetBlue? Um, I wasn't really expecting it to be Paris, but I mean, Norse are flying from Paris as well, aren't they? Uh, mm-hmm, yes. or could I be, am I wrong? No, no, I think so. I think you're right. Well, I was hoping for it to be Copenhagen from a personal <laughs> <laughs> aspect, but you know, uh, yes, vive la France, vive Paris. Uh, yeah, great. For, I, I love JetBlue, it's one of my favorite airlines in the world. Well, now they've made it into a, a, a nice U, right? I mean, you go from New York or Boston to London, you take the train over to Paris, and then you fly back on JetBlue home. It's perfect. Except you've, you've, not, you've not done yes. European rail travel, have you, Osh? Was it you? <laughs> no, I like the uh, was it Eurostar. Okay. And then uh, another airline story, um, British Airways. Uh, they became the first UK airline to trial this bit biometric technology. really helps to get customers to travel on an international routine without having to even show their passports. I think they tried it to sort of Spanish destinations for now, Malaga, etc. Um, I saw this in a post by Simplexity Travel Management. Um, it sounds great. You know, I've, I've certainly used some of those biometric gates um, as many of the European ports, but to have this end-to-end with the airline not even asking to see your paperwork must be quite nice to go on a trip like that right guys i actually love it i love it Um, it. i use clear here in the u.s and with clear i don't even need my id so it's really a great way to travel i mean your your eyes uh scan your eyes and your fingerprint sometimes but usually it's just your eyes it takes literally three seconds for them to validate you if that long so if you forget your id because you know the olden days you forget your id and you freak out so this is an extension of that globally so i love it and i think this is really the future Mm. of travel so do I. I think it's the future of travel. Brilliant. It is convenient. And um, but Ash, surely you don't need ID anyway. You go, right? Everybody knows where where Ash is and That's where right. he's coming. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Okay. Very good. Very good. <laughs> There's one more story. Ash, if you can hold out. That was from Daniel. I found this. This was just. This is our fun story of the week, right? And this is where you can now go and bet 
which airline is going to cancel the most flights over Thanksgiving. Bit of a silly gimmick there. But um, did you appreciate that story, Ash? I did. You know, there is this um, crazy amount of betting in the U.S. Everything is a bet now, and they've really normalized betting of every game. The NFL, which was one of the big holdouts of betting, have now embraced betting. So you just see betting everywhere. So I'm not surprised that they did this. As far as my bet, I would put the bet that the airline that has the most flights is probably going to be on the list. So I'm going to go with uh, United. Uh-huh. Yeah, I see. I see. JetBlue is a long shot of nine to one odds, but um, yeah, they're, they're betting heavily on Alaska Air and a few of those. But uh, yeah, you're probably right. It's uh, but it was just a bit of a funny story for me to read about. So people have clearly, you know, too much time uh, to come up with these sort of things. Really, <laughs> too much oh, money. Too much time and too much money. Exactly. Too much yeah. money. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All that's left uh, for me to say is thank you to you both and to the audience and for those who join us today in the audience. Thank you very much. We do this weekly. And from my side, uh, I'll see you guys then. Thank you so much, everyone. And thank you all for joining today's session. We host this LinkedIn audio call every week on Monday, and it is all about linking the travel industry. Please do share this event with everybody that you know, and chances are that if you enjoyed this session, that others that you know will as well. And if you cannot make it because of time zone or availability, this session is available as a podcast on businesstravel360.com. This is Linking the Travel Industry, signing off.